doesn't really matter who you are. Every person on the planet is, is compelled by stories, right? You, you know this, you experience this. There are just certain stories that, that draw you in, that captivate you, and our hearts are stirred by them. I've got a question for you. How much would you pay to be written into a famous novel? Immortalized, right? Immortalized forever in a story. How much would you pay? Well, there, that was the question posed a few years ago by a nonprofit organization hosting a fundraiser. The online auction offered the highest bidder the chance to be written into the next Stephen King novel. 76 bids came in. The winner paid over $25,000 to receive literary immortality by ironically being killed off in King's story. But it's interesting to think that, that people would pay big money to be written into a famous story. I actually, when I read about that, I actually expected that the dollar amount would be more because there was actually somebody who paid $28,000 to buy a grilled cheese that looked like it kind of had a picture of the Virgin Mary on it in the way it was toasted. Someone paid 28 grand for that, 25 grand for Stephen, that seemed low. But it's interesting to think that people would pay big money to be written into a famous story. And I, I think it actually reflects a, a longing deep in our hearts. A longing to find our place in a story bigger than our own personal story. Babette Buster said, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. And I agree with her. I agree with her. And I'm a pastor, so you're going to expect what I say next. I actually think the Bible it contains the best story. The most amazing story. I agree with Babette when she says narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. I believe the scriptures tell the best story, most compelling story that there is. Well, out at the same time, out of the other side of my mouth, I will also say our telling of it hasn't always been the best. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous 20th century preacher from London, he said this, there is something radically wrong, radically wrong with dull and boring preachers. How can a man be dull when he is handling such themes? I would say that a dull preacher is a contradiction in terms with the grand theme and message of the Bible, dullness is impossible. But have you ever heard a dull sermon from a dull preacher at a dull church? I don't know why so many of you are shaking your heads yes, but it's concerning to me. But you hear what he's saying, right? If this is the most amazing story that there is, how could we ever be boring about it? There's a longing in all of us to be a part of a story bigger than our own personal stories. A story that's big enough to incorporate and add meaning to our individual experiences. The most amazing story, the Bible story, reveals to us that God has a divine purpose at work behind everything that takes place. And to know the story is to make sense of life in the world, right? If you know this story, 
then you're going to have grasped an understanding of what your life is about and what's going on in the world, right? And so it's really, really critical. It's really, really important. So at the risk of being a dull preacher, I'd like to I'd like to zero in on a little history lesson here for a moment, okay? Some of you hear history lesson and your eyes are glazing over already. So I'm going to try and make this super exciting history, all right? Here we go. In the late 1800s, there was a group of liberal German theologians who started to attack the fundamentals of the Christian faith, primarily at the academic level. They began to posit statements like this, the Bible is full of errors, it's not God's word. And, and people, they're not fundamentally sinful, they're good. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen. It was, just, it was just symbolic or it was just an illusion. Or Jesus didn't have to die for our sins on the cross. He was basically a victim rather than willfully laying his life down. You, you hear, th- th- these are some of the statements that were being made by, by these German th- theologians in the 1800s. We're not unfamiliar with such statements, but they were positing those kinds of Uh, belief structures at that time. Well, in in response to this, a number of Christian leaders rose up to defend the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and they wrote a series of documents on the fundamentals of Christianity in response to liberal theology. Can you guess what the movement came to be called? I've kept using a, a particular word over and over again. This movement came to be called fundamentalism, okay? And here was its point. It wasn't that it was even meant to be a holistic picture, but fundamental responses to key points. But the rest of the story, the rest of God's story, the rest of the Bible story, because of all the controversy, at that time wasn't really emphasized, Fundamentalism was, at that time, a response to liberal theology. But here's the thing. Out of fundamentalism came Pentecostalism and evangelicalism. And and we would consider this to be an evangelical church. So I'm using words this morning like fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And those are not popular terms anymore, right? Not many people are putting the fun in fundamentalism anymore. You know what I mean? I encourage you to do so, though put a lot of fun into it. But these were good things. At the time, at the time, they were were faithful responses to particular, really, heresies. Evangelicalism, the, the, the root of evangelicalism was that faith really centers around salvation. You need to come to faith in Jesus. These are beautiful things. This is a rich history. These words need to be redeemed for sure, but it's it comes from rich history. But the whole story of the Bible, though, is broader than those fundamentals. And so because we're in this evangelical kind of tradition, um, the fundamentalism emphasis has kind of continued to stick. And that's, that's a great thing in, in many ways, but we often have, we've chopped off the beginning and the end of the story all too often. See, the whole story of the Bible is actually about creation, God's goodness. The Bible starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3 with the fall. 
And so we, we need to remember that. And then in the story, we deal with the issue of sin. And then we come to God's redemption. And then we talk about our future. But fundamentalism chopped the beginning and the end off because they weren't issues that were really being challenged at the time. Only sin and the cross and salvation were. So as a result, the questions that were traditionally asked about how did we get here? And what's the purpose of life? And are people basically good or evil? And is there hope in the world? And what happens when we die and what does the future hold, we're actually reduced down to you're a sinner, you need salvation, and heaven's better than the alternative. And it's not as hot, right? But do you hear, the, do you hear how that's shrunk the story of the Bible? Anytime the, the story starts with, did you know you're a sinner? It, it's a true statement, but it's not a robust vision of what God himself gives us in his word. Uh, I used to make fun of my dad growing up uh, for a number of reasons, right? Like a son does. Uh, But particularly when we'd watch a movie, inevitably partway through the movie, he would fall asleep, right? And uh, so, you know, I'd throw popcorn at him or, dad, dad, you're missed. This is a great part, you know, and and what, what? And he'd pretend he never fell asleep. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we'd carry on and three minutes later, he'd be like, you know. Here's the thing, though, about um, aging is that I I am uh, regularly awoken these days by my wife who's like, are you asleep? And I'm like, what's happening? And, you know, I've missed really important parts of the show or the movie, you know? Uh, a couple years ago, I went to one of, the, one of the new Star Wars movies that comes out every two months, right? And uh, I went with some buddies and, you know, because we wanted to help put the kids down and stuff. It's more ideal in the young family stage of life to go to the late show. But the problem is, is that you don't get great sleep when you're in a young family. So I went to the 10 o'clock show with my buddies and I honestly, I don't remember anything past 10, 10 right? Like I just fell asleep in the theater. They're so, the seats are so comfortable now, right? So this reclines and I'm out, okay? I, I think I saw a couple previews. I know I went to Star Wars, but I don't really remember much else. Here's what I'm trying to say. When we don't know the big story of the Bible and where individual stories, threads, right, storylines, plot lines fit in with it, we're often lost and we don't know what to make of the Bible. Right, sometimes we open up the scriptures in, in, and we re, or if you're reading through the Bible in a year or whatever, you might come to a passage in the Old Testament and you're like, this is obscure. <laughs> this, is, this is strange. I don't know what to make of this text. Now, oftentimes, if we don't know the grand themes, the big storylines, we're often lost in the weeds of like, what is this about? And because we haven't often been taught the whole Christian story, I really do believe we have a whole generation that is looking and trying to make sense of God, Jesus, and culture, and the world, and not quite sure how it all fits together. You resonate with that at all? Like, where does this fit in? So we're embarking on a four-week series that we're calling The Greatest Story. See, a good story has a beginning, a middle, and end. And the plot, the plot is what makes the story. And the better the plot, the better the story. That's why I found in the last you know, decade or so, some of my favorite films have been indie films. And for a film to be an indie film, an independent film, it often has a very small budget. But oftentimes, they're my favorite movies. Why? Because story is king, right? 
if the story, if the movie has a great story, it doesn't matter if it has a $4 million budget or $400 million budget. It really comes down to the plot. And so we want to spend over the next four weeks a, a, a look in at the greatest story, spending four weeks looking at the grand plot lines of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. See, the biblical story begins literally at the beginning. The middle, the middle of the story has a myriad of twists and turns, setbacks, and absolutely incredible advances, and there's even a happy ending. But it is not a happy ending that comes cheap or easily. See, the Bible in four chapters, we could say, or the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big picture of the Bible is from eternity before time to eternal future. That's an enormous story. And so that's why we're breaking it down into creation, fall, redemption, and restoration to help us get a handle on the greatest story. So these four movements to the plot line show up all over the pages of the Bible. You can really pick it up anywhere and see, ah, here's some... Here's some threads of the fall. And what's this going on? What's this shadow? What's this? I don't understand this scenario. It's like these shadows of redemption sprinkled in. Every story in the scriptures has these movement. Some place that it lands and fits in. And so grasping the, the meta narrative or the big picture of the Bible actually helps us make sense of all the various stories and details. And it also helps us make sense of our lives. There's no story like the Bible story. Apart from Jesus, our questions about meaning, I truly believe, can't be answered consistently and satisfactorily. So this isn't just another story to take or to leave. I think it's the story that we actually all find ourselves in and that most compellingly and convincingly answers the deepest questions we all have. It's going to be a fun four weeks. So let's start with the first movement, creation. That's just my intro, but I'm, I promise you, you're going to get home by dinner, okay? That's my commitment to you. It's a terrible long preacher joke, but I, I, I'm committed to, uh, to doing that. So um, if you have a Bible, why don't you go Genesis chapter 1? We'll have some of these... Uh, verses on the screen, but you can open your Bible to the beginning because the beginning is the very best place to start. And the reason it's important uh, to have the whole story is because the middle parts, particularly the fall, only speak to our brokenness and not our purpose. And they only speak to our fallen condition and not our created condition. So we have to back up the bus a little bit further, which means when you start a dialogue with culture and all you tell them what's wrong with them, and not who they are and why they're born, you're going to end up with a story that's, that's, that has less cultural influence, for one, but secondly, lacks robust vision for ourselves. So this morning, we're going to look at God's good creation, what culture is, and the original calling given by God. It's all about purpose this morning. So the greatest story begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we discover there is a world of harmony and perfect peace. And right out of the gate, creation addresses three issues. We see them in verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
The three issues that creation addresses are formlessness, void, and darkness. Now, in ancient literature, we discovered that the seas were viewed as chaos, full of threat, full of mystery. In many kind of historic creation accounts and in mythology, there's kind of a war of the gods and creation is formed. But what we see in the Holy Scriptures is this. The biblical creation account reveals God addressing the darkness and the void and the chaos, not with a fight, but with a word. With a word. God merely speaks into the void. The opening scenes of the Bible reveal an all-powerful God who speaks and the universe appears out of nothing. Then in verse 3, we read, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And over and over again, God said this, and it happened over and over and over again. And like an artist admiring his handiwork, God looks at his stunningly beautiful world and joyfully declares, it's good. Now, there's repetition, especially in chapter 1, that you can see here that's not to to be missed in the creation account. Repeated over and over is God said, God said, God said, God made, God blessed. See, creation points to God's existence. When you look at the stars or out across the water or up at the mountains or down from the mountains, it's all testimony to God in creation, to this creator God. See, well, the creation is stunning. It's amazing. The creator is even more so. And the creation itself is meant to remind us of that. Seeing God as creator is a major aspect of who God is. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, they wrote of God this way. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There are three key descriptors they chose to use of God. Father, what a beautiful phrase for God. God our Father, God Almighty, all-powerful, and maker of heaven and earth. He's a creator God. It's who he is. Now, creation reveals the goodness and greatness of God. Creation's like a road sign. Creation isn't the thing, but it points you to the thing. Have you ever thought of creation that way? Creation is the road sign. It's not itself the thing. It's pointing you to the thing. The creator God behind it all. All of God's creation is one big call to praise him. Next, In the text, we see God creates the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. And we see that they lived in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with the creation. Let's read uh, verse 26 to 28. You'll see it on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I say that God saves the pinnacle of his creation for last because we see that God made them male and female in his image image. God made a myriad of creatures, right? 
lions and whales and hummingbirds and sloths. We can see from our text that God made a lot of creepy things as well, right? He made all sorts of things. And after the fall, now this is just conjecture on my part, but I believe after the fall, then God created cats, right? (laughs) Just conjecture, okay? But none of these creatures, none of these creatures, stunning as they may be, are made in the image of God. God made humanity in his image. The cat lovers here are like, I'm checking out. No, no. All right. Second, we see that God gave human beings everything we need to fulfill our, our purpose of bearing his image. He uses language like subduing and having dominion over the earth and a call to obey God as the creator, recognizing that they, humanity, were the creation. God made the first humans with the capacity to rule over the complex world wisely as an act of stewardship, as an act of worship. So when God put them in the garden and commanded them to have dominion over it, he gave them all they needed to do the job. This ties into purpose. Now, if you have your Bible open, flip over to chapter 2. Verse 9, and if you're an underliner type, I've got a couple things you could underline here in verse 9. It says this, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is, one, pleasant to the sight, and two, good for food. I find that to be a fascinating verse. Packed in this verse are two express purposes in creation. Creation was good for food, but also pleasing to the eye. In other words, there's a usefulness to creation. In the resources we need to live, God provides them, right? Every tree, every, every living thing created to give us food. But he doesn't stop there. There's also a beauty component, meaning in creation, there is beauty and pleasure to be enjoyed. In other words, God not only provides for our needs through creation, he also provides for our enjoyment. He's that good. Uh, last weekend, I uh, was speaking at a conference in the interior, and so I drove... Uh, I drove there uh, on the Friday afternoon. I drove home on the Saturday night. And I think there were a couple things going on that made that drive just, just, just so wonderful. One was I was driving it alone. So that was awesome. Uh, I've driven that drive with my family before. I've never noticed the stunning creation as much before because usually I'd have one arm in the back trying to separate two boys from piling on each other during the drive. A little, little sidetracked. But the other reason was because I knew I was going to be preaching on this. And so I was just intentionally trying to take notice of God's good creation, being reminded of the usefulness of it. I was able to stop at a Starbucks partway through and say, wow, somehow coffee comes from this earth. God, you are so good. It's both providing for my caffeine need, but it's also beautiful, it's also good, it's, it's enjoyable. And I, I started to see as I drove by the, like, the rock formations on the mountains, like I hadn't really noticed as closely before. And, and any time there was a little waterfall, I'd try and slow down and just notice it a bit more. So I, it, it, usually I'm sidetracked by the boys, this time I was sidetracked by the beautiful creation. Either way, probably a slightly dangerous driver. But I was so grateful to God. Like I, I would invite you, This is a really practical, really simple application point. This next week, whenever there's something that you're like, 
wow, God, you've met my need. You've met this need. You've met that need. I just encourage you with, with a grateful heart, thank him. The creation is always meant to point to the creator. So any time in the next week that the creation itself is useful to you, needs are met, thank him. But not only that, in this next week, I'd also invite you, anytime there's joy in you, pleasure, appreciation of something beautiful, some, some, some meaningful relationship, anything that stirs your heart, thank him. Because God didn't just make it for, your, for usefulness, he also for your enjoyment. God did that. I read about a painter who spent two years making a series of paintings of a particular tree at different times in different seasons under different conditions. Over and over and over again, he kept painting the same tree. Well, the locals there barely ever took notice of the tree until the artists kind of forced them to notice it. And then they saw it. And then they enjoyed it. See, I think artists have a way of seeing beauty in what the rest of us take for granted, what the rest of us often barely notice. And so I would invite you this week, notice God's good creation and remember that it's just a road sign pointing to the thing, which is God. So what does this movement of the greatest story teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that he's powerful. He created with a word. He's transcendent. He's directly involved in creation, but not part of that creation. And yet he's also a personal being who delights in his creation, especially us. And really, we can summarize the fact that we see that he's holy. What does that mean? It means that he's set apart. He alone is God. And he is worthy of praise. The opening pages of the Bible, I think, resonate with us because we know we were made for this kind of world. Do you ever feel that? You read the creation account and there's something that resonates in you because you're like, yes, I was created for this kind of world. Next week, we'll look at the reality we also feel that the world's gone wrong. It's gone sideways. But what that also indicates to us is that we were created for a world that is right. So whenever we're confronted with injustice, there's something inside of us that says this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And that's because we were made for the world of Genesis 1 and 2. And spoiler alert, at the end of this series, we're also going to talk about that's why you ache for the world. You ache for the world of Revelation 21 and 22, when God will make all things new, again, set everything right. See, the gospel explains, the good news explains this longing for Eden by telling us that in the beginning, God created a world that he declared to be good. Now, back to uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Colby, you want to put that back on the screen for us? And what you're going to see there is this. We see, let me summarize it. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over essentially the seas, the skies, and the earth. What we're called to in this passage, when, when, when humanity are brought into being, we see that we uh, are called to create and to cultivate. So I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about what that means. 
And we see in the text that we are to do that in a way that reflects God's goodness and truth. This is what it means to be made in the image of God, that we ourselves are meant to create and to cultivate and to do so in such a way, this was the mandate, that helps society flourish through the things that we do, the creating and cultivating that we do. We're given what theologians call a creation mandate or the cultural mandate. We talk a lot, a lot at Central about the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. And as the series goes on, we'll be reminded how vitally important that is. But we need to realize, what we need to realize is that before sin, before the need for redemption, before anything, God gave another great commission. He gave another great command. And that is the command to create culture. Herman Bavink, the famous Dutch theologian, wrote, Genesis 1.26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image, namely that man should have dominion over all living creatures and that he should multiply and spread out over the world, subduing it. If now we comprehend the force of this subduing under the term culture, now generally used for it, we can say that culture, in its broadest sense, is the purpose for which God created man after his image. Now, what, some of what I'll share in the remainder of our time here, I learned from a pastor and author named John Tyson. He defines culture this way. He says, culture is the beliefs, behaviors, values, language, intellectual achievements, artistic expressions, and entire way of life of a particular group of people. That is a culture. And there are many cultures in the world, but that is what a culture is. Culture derives from the Latin word colere, which means to plow or till and pertain to the cultivation, care, and tending of plants and animals. In a religious sense, the word cultus, cultus means lake that gets too busy in the summer, right? <laughs> it's a very technical term. No. Uh, in the religious sense, the word cultus means to revere or to venerate with a religious or uh, a worshipful component to it. So all of these kind of definitions put together, it, it, it means this. Every culture has a center and then things are done around it. All the culture making is done around whatever the center is, whatever we revere and venerate as a culture, culture's created around that. It's a really interesting way to kind of analyze our culture, for example. What's at the center of, of our culture, right? Of course, as followers of Jesus, we want to place Jesus as the very center and create culture around it. And that, my friends, is it, it's tying into your purpose. So, so, so why does culture matter? Well, culture matters because this is why God made you. You were made in his image with a job description. Nancy Piercy says it this way. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. We take, in other words, these raw elements of the earth put there by God. God's the only one who creates out of nothing. God created out of nothing. We create out of some of the chaos that exists and raw materials that are put before us. 
And out of this chaos and raw elements, we order them together until culture is formed. I want to show you a series of pictures. Here's the first one. What do you see? We see God's creation, right? See the ocean. We see land. We're looking from space. But we don't only see God's creation, do we? We see some of our own. Look at our cities. Look at the lights. It's us down here declaring to the heavens, we're here, right? We too in God's, that's what it means to be made in God's image. The world looks different because we're culture makers, creators, and cultivators. Look at the next picture. What is this? This is music. What is music? Music is taking the raw elements of sound and ordering them and structuring them together to make music. J.S. Bach, one of the greatest composers ever, signed all of his music, all of his compositions, SDG, which stood for Soli Deo Gloria, meaning for the glory of God. See, he understood that when he took the raw elements of sound and fashioned them together in such a way and it could be played rightly, that was music. He was taking raw elements and creating something and he was doing it for God's glory. Why? Because he's made in the image of God. That's what it means to be human. That's why you're here. Now, some of you have had children or nieces or nephews or whatever, and you've heard them learning to play the violin or the drums or the piano. And I just want to inform you, that's not music, that's noise, right? We know that. That's just noise. But music is taking the chaos and raw elements and turning it into something that stirs the heart. Let's look at this next image. What is this? Well, Mennonites would say this is sin, right? It's just a joke. But what is dance? What is dance? Dance is taking the raw elements of movement and ordering them together into beautiful expression that can be simply stunning. Not when I try and take those movements and turn them into something. It's never beautiful. But some people can take these raw elements of movement and turn it into dance, which is actually can be quite beautiful. What is this next one? Architecture. Architecture. It itself fulfills the dual kind of Genesis 2-9, right? Useful, but also pleasing to the eye. What is architecture? It's taking the raw stuff of earth and forming it into incredible structures, whether it's the coolest house ever like this, or it's a bridge, or it's a skyscraper, or it's a shed in the backyard, right? What is science and technology? Well, it's discovery of elements that exist in the world and developing those into technology, which among other things, help us explore the universe and tweet stuff, right? Amazing, just amazing. What is law? What is government? Well, it's taking the chaos and the kind of raw materials of morality and ordering them together in such a way that people find safety and structure and they thrive. That's why government matters. That's why law matters. What is sport? Well, sport is taking chaos and I think it's just reshaping it into other forms of chaos. I think that's the best kind of I can understand of what sport is. And sometimes the men wear tights, which is odd, but you know, whatever. I find football so funny when you look at the, the, the line. And the, the, yeah, anyways. Um, but have you ever seen the perfect golf shot, like off the tee, onto the green, and you just kind of stand back and appreciate it? Or what's soccer often referred to as the beautiful game, right? Story. What are works of art in, in terms of paintings? Well, it's taking the, literally the raw stuff of paint, colors, 
splotches and turning them into works of art. Like I haven't progressed from finger painting, right? Like that's the best I've got. But some people can take these raw elements and do stuff like that. What is, what is story? Sorry, I skipped one there. Story is taking the chaos of language and words and ordering them together into stories that stir our hearts. We're talking a lot about story this morning. Here's the last one. Let's look at this statue here together. I'm making it hard for you, Colby. Sorry, I'm jumping around. This last one is the G-rated version of the statue of David. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but Michelangelo, when asked how he did this, you know what he responded with? He said this. It was there all along. All I did was chip away to reveal it. When he says that, that's precisely what I'm I'm talking about with you here this morning. What is culture creating? What is creating and what is cultivating is taking the raw stuff and chipping away at it until we shape culture with an eye to the flourishing of others. It's why you're here. It's why God made you. Timothy Keller said, we are rearranging the raw elements of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of others. This is why your your work matters, regardless of what your job is. It matters. It matters. And your creativity matters. It matters. You're an image bearer of God. And as you create and as you cultivate, you are imaging your creator God drawing out the elements of a particular domain for the flourishing of everyone. Your vocation, your work, isn't just about putting food on the table. It's partially that, but it's actually bigger than that. It's the calling that you were originally created for. See, we know that the story goes on, but we must not overlook this part. There is a purpose here that resonates deeply in the human heart because this is why we were made. To go a little bit more big picture this morning, although the movements of fall, redemption, and restoration will come, John Mark Comer helps us kind of with what he would call a dual vocation. And I want you leaving remembering that you have a dual vocation. And he describes your dual vocation this way. We, followers of Jesus, are called to a dual vocation to first take the creation project forward, right, of Genesis 1 and 2 and to help humans come into relationship with the creator. It's a very Matthew 28, go make disciples. Bring them to Jesus. See, nothing on the planet is more important than making Jesus known. At the same time, that does not negate your purpose of meaningful work, creating culture for the flourishing of others and the glory of God. These dual vocations are not in competition with each other. They actually complement each other. That's why as followers of Jesus go about doing work, giving our hearts and minds and hands to meaningful work for the flourishing of others. When Christians, followers of Jesus will do that, it will actually serve the purpose of the dual vocation. It will point people to Jesus in the process. So we go about the dual vocation constantly. You and I know this isn't the end of the story. Our world isn't united on Jesus at the center and culture created around it. We actually live in contested space. Later in the story, Jesus will come on a rescue mission to redeem his fallen creation. But for now, we observe this. The first movement of the greatest story ever 
is about God creating a stunning world with humanity as its pinnacle, with a mandate as image bearers of our creator God to create and cultivate culture in community with him and each other. From early childhood on, we live for stories. Every night when my boys get in bed, they ask me, they plead with me, Dad, read us a story. They love stories, and we never grow out of it. We all live for stories, but we don't just live for stories. We also live by stories. You realize that, right? We live by stories. Here's what I mean. How we understand the story we're in affects how we live. And for that reason, I can't tell you how important this is. It's the most important thing because the story you're living by affects every decision, all your choices. It affects everything about you. It affects how you see the world, how you come to terms on anything. See, when it comes to the stories of our lives, here's the irony. When we live as if our own personal story is at the center of our universe, we struggle to find meaning and significance. It's a really interesting case study, but here's the problem. In the West, we are on a quest, culturally speaking, for autonomy. We want to be self-governing individuals. You notice that, right? We, that, that's what the West want, self-governance. No, don't you tell me what I can do. Don't you tell me what I can't do. We want autonomy. But here's the thing. The irony is that when we live as if we're the center of the universe, we struggle to find meaning and significance. But when Jesus takes that center place or the throne in our lives, however you might want to say it. When Jesus is at the center and we're pushed to the periphery, it's actually then that we find true worth and value. So the apostle Paul comes along in Colossians 1 and says this, he of Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning he has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And for For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. By Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. That's why Abraham Kipper said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Music and the arts, Jesus declares, mine. Architecture, mine. Law and government, mine. Science and technology, mine. Story, Jesus declares, it's all mine. Even before the fall, Listen to this. Even before the fall, it's all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. And that's a good thing. Because as the story unfolds to the next movements of fall, redemption, restoration, as you trace that story over and over again, you're going to be like, I'm so glad it's all about Jesus. So why don't we pray together and respond and worship. Jesus, it is all about you. And God, I find it so refreshing to take a kind of a big picture view of who we are, why we're here, the story that we're in. And it's exciting, God. Everything is jam-packed with meaning. The work of our hands, the way we live our lives, 
Lord, it's all about you. And we're all living by a story. Lord, my, my deepest heart prayer over us is that we would live by this story. Our lives would be shaped by it. We would find deepest meaning and fulfillment in the story that we find ourselves in, that Jesus is really your story. So God, I pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.